To sermon notes. Uh, this is Garland. We got Michael and Josh here producing away as always, uh, keeping us in check. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. We are three weeks into the Ephesians study. Um, I'm going to be honest, uh, this, this little letter is Amazing, it breathtaking. Is. I'm enjoying again just reading it in my own personal, um, you know, kind of just my own personal study. I've just been reading chapters one to three, yeah. kind of over and over again in, in in the whole. And then I'm gonna. I started yesterday with four to six, just kind of reading chunks again and then seeing themes weave together. And it's every time I'm like, I didn't notice that. Man, that's amazing. Check this out. So uh, yeah, I hope you're having the same experience. Uh, dear Sermon Notes listener, Michael, I know you are. Yeah, I was telling our, I have a Thursday morning Bible study. We were looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 this morning. And I was telling them that the metaphor that I sometimes use for especially these shorter epistles like Ephesians is it's spring-loaded. It's like there's so much rich theological content. And then it's just compressed into just a few verses that as you start to open it up, you realize there's so much here. It's just, it's amazing how packed such a brief letter actually is. So we turn now to chapter two, and maybe probably the most famous part of Ephesians is uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. I mean, most Christians that grow up in the South and go through student ministries and college ministries memorize those verses at some point. They're dear to Protestants' hearts, I know. So uh, you get to teach it, Michael. So uh, how you feeling? Uh, Give us a quick summary of what's going on, then we'll come back like we do on sermon notes and and look at stuff that we just didn't have time to say on Sunday. So 2, 8 through 10, they are... um, for those of you that are, maybe your uh, mental Rolodex is spinning, you're trying to remember, what is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we, to be fair, we haven't ripped those from their context. They say what we want them to say what we how we use them in evangelism how we use them even to encourage our own heart sometimes they they say they're very clear our salvation is a gift that god's given us we don't we, we don't deserve it we haven't merited it merited it and it's accessed through faith and so you said near and dear to the hearts of protestants protestants for hundreds of years have been saying faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. And so these verses um, pointed Martin Luther to that, and they've been a bedrock of our, of our faith for years and years. And so it's not that we need to um, restore or fix anything, but I do think we do ourselves a favor by looking at them in the context of the letter. What is Paul, how has he built up to these monumental verses. And that's what we're going to do on Sunday. He starts off Ephesians chapter two, the NIV says, as for you. And um, it really captures the spirit. Paul's been talking in chapter one about Jesus and he's used lofty language. We see what we might call the cosmic Christ who's over everything. He ends chapter one by saying, Jesus fills all and is in all. And then he gets really personal. As for you, 
you know, Garland, if you and I were having a conversation, we're talking about this person and this event. And then I said, but Garland, as for you, you're like, whoa, this just got personal. Now, now we're talking about me. Um, that's what Paul does here. And one of the things that I really want to highlight on, on Sunday when I get a chance to teach this is every pronoun in this whole section, 2, 1 through 10, is plural. If Paul were an Arkansan, like you and me, as you take a sip out of your cup that has the Arkansas State flag etched <laughs> on the side of it, um, that's the reminder, we're, we're here in Arkansas, we would say, y'all, yep. as for y'all, y'all were dead in your transgressions and sins. And so Paul's painting this picture that every single one of us was born dead, spiritually dead, separated from God, unable to even respond to God because of our transgressions, our sins, the things that we didn't do that we should have or the things we did do that we shouldn't have because we followed the ways of the world. And that's every single person's condition. We go along with the culture that we're born into, with the ways of the world. And Paul tells us here uh, in verse two that there's a ruler of the ways of the world. Um, Later in the book, he's going to call him the devil. He's going to call him the evil one. There's a personal spiritual force who's driving the culture of the world opposite of the way God's calling us. Verse three, he says, all of us lived that way. We were following these cravings, these over overactive desires of our flesh, following our desires and our thoughts. And so he says, we were deserving of wrath. Then in verse four, he totally changes course. But the NIV says, because of his great love for us, it's literally because of the great love with which he loved us, the agape with which he agaped us. Um, And because of his mercy, he made us alive with Christ. Paul's revealing to us here, Resurrection Sunday was about more than just Jesus being resurrected. It was in that moment that all of us who by a gift of grace would come to faith in Christ, we were all resurrected that day. Um, And then he tells us, of course, in verses eight and nine, you didn't earn it. You don't work for it. It's a gift. It's a free gift. It's unmerited. There's nothing in any one of us that would make God look at us and say, yeah, that, that guy, I'm gonna, he's, he's pretty good. He'll work out. No, we're all, we're all dead, spiritually dead. And yet because of his grace, he looks at us and he gives us this gift of salvation that we take hold of through faith. And so the chapter or the section wraps up in verse 10. Um, we're his handiwork. Um, one translation actually says we're his masterpiece. It's this Greek word poema. We get our word poem. You know, a poem is a work of art made with words. And so we're his poema. We're his, his handiwork. We're, God has recreated us in Christ for a purpose, good works. And I think it's very intentional that Paul uses the same, and it's the same in the Greek. Verse nine, it's not works that save us. Verse 10, we do works in response to the salvation that's already occurred. And so, like I said, there's so much. It's, it, it is the heart of the gospel message and the implications of the gospel message all carefully crafted in this little 10 verse section. So for you, um, just as a, as a simple summary for those of you listening to this, if you look at verse two, and that, that's really well said, and I think that captures it, but I just love the, the picture of this. Verse two, um, 
in which we used to walk, so that we formerly walked. It's a it's a completed tense verb in Greek. Draw a line from that uh, if you are have your your paper Bible out here with you. Now the NIV blurs this a little bit in verse ten. Um, in verse ten it says, "Which God prepared in advance for us to do." Um, but that's a little unfortunate. The Greek word is peripateo, which is the word for to walk, uh, to go about our business. Um, we used to walk. Verse two, this way, draw an arrow. So the ESV and the NASB will bring that out, uh, that we might walk in them. It's the same Greek word. So how does God take, how, how does God create? I just love the, we're coming out of this cosmic significant thing in chapter one. And by the end of two, he's created a people that can walk in good works with Jesus as their king. How can he do that if they're all walking in disobedience? The answer, look in the middle. And so just seeing that word picture. So draw an arrow from uh, uh, you used to walk in verse two down to that we might walk in them. And if you've got an an NIV, it's going to be for us to do. And you're going to have to write that in so you can see it when you come back to this later. Uh, Michael, as we do in sermon notes... um, there's a lot in all these passages, especially in Ephesians. Paul is right. is layering this on, carefully crafting this letter. It probably took a couple of months to craft and put together. And he and it's it, no word is an accident here. What that means is we got to make choices on a Sunday morning for thir- when we get only thirty minutes. And I always go long. Um, we got to make choices, and so um, that leaves things out. What as you were studying this that our small group leaders, people doing discipleship, just studying this personally. What What is is in this that would bring illumination or clarity that just didn't make the cut for yeah, Sunday? Great question. I mean, there's a few things that I'll have time to touch on, but not really explore. Um, one is this idea of the ways of the world. And Garland, you and I were kind of laughing as we remembered um, in our seminary days, the founder, you and I both went to Dallas Theological Seminary, our founder, Lewis Bray Chafer, he gives a whole chapter in his systematic, his seven volume systematic theology to Cosmos Diabolicus. <laughs> the world, the world that's under the dominion of Satan, um, evil, that that the world is actually, right now, Satan has a lot of free reign, um, and he calls him here the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And so I think that's one of the things that could potentially come up in a community group. It came up this morning in our study. What does that mean, the ruler of the kingdom of the air? And I, I think uh, sort of a simple way to think about that is um, we're surrounded by the air. We don't see it, um, but it's it's everywhere. And one of the things Paul sort of pulls the curtain back a little bit in this book, and we're going to see this as we press into it, is this unseen spiritual realm. There are these powers. There are these authorities. Um, there is a spiritual reality that unless the Lord just supernaturally opens our eyes to see it, we don't, we don't physically see it. Sometimes we see its effects. Sometimes we feel it. Uh, but here, Paul says, we follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient. It's literally the sons of disobedience, those whose lives are marked by this disobedience. Later in the book, he's going to call him Satan, or not Satan, the devil. He's going to call him the evil one. And so I think that's something that could come up in your group is why, why does he use this description? Um, and Satan does have a certain power and Satan has been given um, a season here where he can exert his influence in this fallen world. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting to me when you read, you know, when you kind of go and look at this this theme of the evil one, uh, when you look at it throughout the pages of Scripture, and Paul, as a as a first century Jew, is this is the worldview he has. Um, the Bible will unpack for us that there is. 
there's the human rebellion that's going on in the world, but there's also the spiritual rebellion that's going on in the world, and those are wedded together. Go read you know, Genesis 1 to 3, and you'll see it, particularly Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 10, and 11. You'll see this weddedness of the spiritual and the human in rebellion against God. And as the pages of Scripture unfold, one of the things that we can look at as we look at our world today is behind the injustice and the greed, and behind the violence, and behind the decay, there's a spiritual element at work. And we can so often in our, you know, American, we're kind of inclined, it seems, almost sort of like a naturalistic worldview, miss that. And I don't think Paul misses that. And so we need to appropriately appreciate that. And we better by the time we get to chapter six. Um, right. So he's going to go there hard in chapter six. Okay, what else did make the cut? Well, another thing that, you know, I, it's not that it didn't make the cut. It's just that I won't have a ton of time to unpack it. And I think it's going to be a topic in community groups, which is this idea of God's wrath. It's the last word in verse three, that we are by nature deserving of wrath. And um, God's wrath is not something that we talk about a ton, uh, but we don't want to shy away from it when it comes up in the passage. And in our community groups, we don't want to shy away from talking about it. So what is God's wrath? Um, Wayne Grudem, he's always great for a very concise definition. He says, um, God's wrath is his hatred for sin. And so it's God's ongoing anger toward sin itself, things that are opposed to God. If God loves things that are good, it makes sense to us that he would hate things that are evil. And so as we try to wrap our mind around God's wrath, I want to ask you, our listener, to just do a quick thought experiment with me. Um, I want you to just think for a moment about a sin that you see in the world that makes you angry. And I'm not even going to name some for you to pick from. I just want you to think when you see in the news or you observe happening in the world a sin that makes you mad, it turns your stomach. Now I want you to pause and think, do I want God to have that same reaction? Do I want God to hate that evil? And of course we do because God's put in us a sense of justice. And so we actually need a God who has wrath towards sin, towards evil. But the logical next statement then is we're deserving of that wrath because as Paul has eloquently unpacked in the first three verses, we're all sinners. We all have done things um, that miss the mark, that go against God, um, the things we've done and not done that were displeasing to him. And so we are deserving of that wrath. Um, that's what makes verse four so powerful. But because of his great love, because of the great love with which he's loved us, um, he's given us a way to be alive. He's made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead. And one of the things I really want us to, to notice here is God didn't say, um, when you clean yourself up a little bit, when you uh, get rid of some of these bad habits, when you make yourself a little more presentable, just, just take a couple of steps, just, just reach out for me. Um, then I will respond, no, while we were dead in our sins, um, he made us alive. When he resurrected Christ, he resurrected us, those of us that he's, he's given this gift of grace to. And so um, for us to think that we have any part in that, as we read this passage um, of making ourselves somehow appealing to God, it seems ridiculous. And so that's why he's going to say later in the passage, nobody can boast. None of us should, should look at a non-believer and think, ah, 
If only you were as spiritual as me, as only if, if you were as wise as me, if only you knew what I know. Um, no, we should look at that person and our heart should break for them. And so I think one of the things um, for us to take away and I would love for us to talk about in our community groups is when I find myself becoming angry at lost people, man, they're, those, those people out there um, with these morals that go against the church, they're anti-God, they, the things they say about Christianity, my flesh wants to get mad at them. But as I read this passage, I realize my heart should break for them because outside of God's free gift of grace, that's me. If I was still following the course of the world, if I was still giving into the, the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts, I would be saying and doing the same things they are. And so this passage should, should rather than puffing us up, man, it should make us humble and make us have a desire for those people to experience, to taste this grace that we've tasted. And if our community group conversations could get us to that point, um, man, I know that would make me happy, but I think it would please the Lord as well. Yeah, I'm gonna give two sets of three. If you're just for just for observation purposes for you, especially if you're leading this, uh, we want to help our people learn how to study their Bibles and notice things. I know that's what we're doing as we guide them in this book. Uh, there's three great past tense or aorist tense verbs, uh, and we tend to focus on eight and nine, but don't miss these verbs. Uh, you see them in five, and they're in six. But God, what did He do? What's the actions? Completed tense. It's it's done made us alive with. That's all one verb in Greek. Made us alive with. Second great verb, he raised us with Christ. Third great verb, seated us with him. Now, you should draw an arrow mentally up to chapter one. All that language about Christ, and now he's saying, You've, you were with. All these are compound verbs with the, the prefix soon, which is the way to say with in Greek. So all that stuff in chapter one, he goes, you're with him in that, if you are in Christ. So three great verbs, draw your people's attention to that. And there's three, as the second group of three is, there's three in order that's, okay? So three so that's. One is in verse seven, so that he might show in the coming ages his incomparable riches. Back up to chapter one, we just talked about it. Second one is, so that no one might boast, what you just said. There it is. So the second great so that so that no one might boast. And the third gets a little obscured again in the NIV, but it's at the end of verse 10, so that we might walk in them. Um, so just right there, just by observing some things in the passage, let that maybe guide some of your conversation um, as you have this. Help have your small group people, you know, box those and underline those, you know, help them see the transition that Michael pointed out in verse four, but God, help them know how to do this. It's what we really want to do as we look at the, a letter like this is teach our people how to study their Bible. Um, what else you got, Michael? Well, I just want to, we can, we can kind of land it with this as far as, what we take from I'm the passage and, yeah. and what, yeah, people have other things to listen to. Um, what we take from the passage as well as what we're going to talk about in our groups would be this. I think there's two things that in our um, sort of evangelical understanding of the passage, which is not wrong. I want to just be clear. I'm not saying we've misinterpreted this, we've misused this, but I think we have very much personalized it. So that would be the first one that, yes, it is about me, God's shown me grace and saved me by faith, but but the, the language is plural, as I said, and so it's about us. And so for us to maybe lift our eyes just a little bit and see that he's talking about all of us and how he's done a work in the body. Yeah, we're going to drill down 
deeply into that next week. If we miss the plurals and make it all about me, we're actually going to miss that he's drawing a collection of people in these house churches. He's drawing a collection of people who are divided to come together. It's it's where he's going to go next week. And so it's going to be super clear. We got to note that this week that it's not about me individually, although it is, this is about we and y'all. And so, yeah, that's, that's really good. What what was the other one? The second one is just that I think we've overly emphasized the future component. Yes, there is a hope of eternal life. Yes. You know, when we, when we lose someone we love, man, we lean into that hope that I will see them when I see Jesus. And that's true. And that's a bedrock part of our faith. But to some extent, we've overly minimized the now, that now I'm made alive with Christ, I'm raised up with Christ, and I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. We have a tendency to think, oh man, one day, one day when I'm in heaven with Jesus. Well, according to this, we're in heaven with Jesus now in the sense that while he's at the right hand of the Father, he's providing us access to the throne room of heaven. That when Christ ascended, spiritually speaking, we ascended with him. And so all these ideas of our citizenship not being on earth, but being heavenly, that we're ambassadors here. Man, this is so informed by a passage like this. Let's not miss that it's a corporate experience in our community groups, in our church, in the broader church as brothers and sisters in Christ, and eternal life begins now. We can live a life that looks and feels different now, even as we're living in anticipation of experiencing that in all its fullness one day. Yeah, the, the theological term is called being incorporated into Christ, and this might be just, uh, I don't know where else to say it in our podcast here. So go through Ephesians. So uh, listener, go through Ephesians in one sitting and just circle or box or underline every time the words in Christ, with Christ, in light of Christ, through Christ, and then pull back and look at it. The idea of being in Christ is saturating this letter and that's worth some reflection. So as you're saying, yes, you are in Christ now. And that'd be a worthy study. Well, we hope as you lead this, as you read uh, Ephesians, as we teach it in discipleship and small group, uh, as always, we want this to be a, a supplement to what happens on Sunday and a supplement to what happens uh, in your living room. So uh, enjoy this week's lesson. It's an amazing passage. We can't wait to get to worship the Lord because of what he's done. And thanks for listening to Sermon Notes. Sermon Notes.